So May 5th, my book comes out. Oh my goodness. If you are listening to this and you have the book in your hand or the book on your shelf, on your nightstand, we made it. We made it. The book, it's about damn time. I've been talking about it for months. And you know what? It is about damn time. That's right. The book is out. If you haven't picked it up yet, go to itsaboutdamntime.com. Grab the book. If you need it immediately, you don't even want to wait for it to be shipped to you. Grab the audio or the ebook version as well because they're fire. The book itself is fire. I can say that. Um, you'll see why I can say that when you read the book because I talk about having that confidence unapologetically. How meta is that? All right. I can't wait to hear your feedback on the book. Please spread it around to anyone you think will benefit from it. And wow, we made it, y'all. We made it. You helped me do this. So thank you so much. We're here. I'm Arlen Hamilton, and this is Your First Million. I'm a venture capitalist. I started my fund Backstage Capital from the ground up while I was on food stamps. I have now invested in more than 100 companies led by women, people of color, and LGBT founders. After having raised more than $10 million, people often ask me how I did it. I created this podcast so I could tell you my story and so that together we could go on a journey and speak with some of the most successful people in the world from all backgrounds and walks of life to learn how they got their first million. And who knows, maybe I'll reach my first million in personal capital while I'm recording this series. There's only one way to find out. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Arlen. This is your first million. So happy to have you back. Cannot wait for you to hear this interview with Leanne Pittsford. She is the founder of Lesbians Who Tech. If you haven't heard of Lesbians Who Tech, look it up right now. It's really, really cool. They do a ton of events and they have a lot of resources and it's a lot of fun. That's like the main thing you should know. Really helpful, has probably helped, I don't know how many people uh, get a job uh, in the tech industry and uh, connected corporations to, to those talented tech-related talent. I guess talented talent is redundant, but you know what I mean. And on top of that, they do it with flair, with finesse, and you just have, feel good when you're around that energy. And I have had the pleasure of speaking at several Lesbians Who Tech events. And when I do, they just treat me like royalty. They're just the nicest. They treat everybody like royalty. Everybody's a VIP at Lesbians Who Tech. That's the really cool part of it, truly. So talking to Leanne about how she built it from one-off events at bars to thousands and thousands of people coming to events in person and now online. It was a real pleasure because I've known Leanne for several years. And I've, like I said, I've spoken there many times, but I, I never knew the, the real behind the scenes, behind the curtain story. And it was just really great to, to learn. So check it out. This will help you. It's about million dollars. It's about downloads and views and attention. So a lot of things you'll get from this, a lot of gems you'll get from it. And then I hope to see you at the events that I am going to do with Lesbians Who Tech. Everyone is invited. It's not just for lesbians. <laughs> Although 
It's a great group of people. As you'll hear in the interview, it's like allies left and right. And it is just, like I said, just a ton of fun. And um, I, I can't wait to introduce you to it or to have you go behind the scenes if you're already familiar. All right. I'll talk to you on the other side. Hi, Leanne. Hi, Erlen. How's it going? You know, life is uh, different, but interesting. What entrepreneur doesn't love a uh, few curveballs in life? <laughs> this is the curveball of all curveballs. <laughs> really is. This is a slider, like a maybe even a, a slow. Well, let's let's start with up. your situation. Like you, you had a baby recently, like your first baby recently, and I see. I guess I shouldn't call her a baby. She's she's the most gorgeous child. Oh my god! And she right? just love. She's so sweet. What is that like? First of all, pre-corona, what is that experience? Pre-corona. I mean, it's crazy. I was one of those people who never really imagined giving birth, having a child. It was more of an experience that I thought, God, it just feels like this experience that I couldn't like not know what it was like. And obviously assumed once I had a child, I would connect and all the things, but many decisions in my life, I feel like are made by just needing to know and not knowing is a, is a worse path than, than knowing, right? Always. And so, yeah, it was, uh, blew all of my expectations out of the water. I mean, being pregnant was hard. I cannot, I mean, people told me it was hard, but you know, and I don't know if I'm a little bit older and it's just, but I had a really hard pregnancy gained a ton of weight, had a C-section, had a preeclampsia. And it was not, uh, I was not one of those people who loved being pregnant by any means of the imagination. But um, Luca August is, uh, is perfect. She's just like the perfect little being. And honestly, it's, uh, it's been amazing. I mean, I will say um, being an entrepreneur and having two parents who are entrepreneurs while having a baby is definitely something to prepare for. Um, not that you can ever prepare, but it has been uh, an interesting journey and a very humbling experience to say the least. How many months or weeks of her life have been under quarantine? So she's six months now and what was it? Mid-March. So about a month of a little over yeah. a month, probably been quarantined. Yeah. So maybe a, a fifth or a sixth of her life has been under quarantine. <laughs> right. And do you I ever, ask do you her ever every look, day? Oh, go ahead. I ask her every day. I'm like, do you know what's happening right now, Luca? We're in, she just smiles and laughs and giggles. It's actually, I'm super thankful to have a, a child right now, to be honest. I think it really puts things in perspective and there's so much joy and just laughter and like, you know, she's so pure and literally has no idea what's going on, except that she gets to see her moms a lot more than she did, you know, a month ago when we had childcare. <laughs> so I think she's, uh, she's loving it. Yeah, that's great. That's really awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit about lesbians who tech. I mean, how many, first of all, this is called your first million. We talk about that, but how many times have you heard the phrase lesbians who tech? A million? (laughs) At least two million at this point. Um, How long has it been in existence? Not enough. And how did it it get started? Yeah, it was about, I think we're going on six years. It feels like 20 right now in the moment, but I think um, this would have been in April, our seventh summit. So kind of marks the six years, six years of being official. We were doing a little bit before uh, the first summit, but it was, it was more casual. 
you know, it came out of a need, right? I worked uh, in the LGBTQ space for No One Prop 8, um, which has got over 10 years ago now in California, the fight to have the right to marry um, the person you love um, for LGBTQ people. Uh, we lost that campaign in California, but I, I learned a ton when I was at that organization around sexism, money and power. And, you know, I, I ran all the data for the campaign. I built some online fundraising tools. It's really where I fell in love with the power of technology and, and what kind of tool it could be for good. Um, uh, but really, it was my kind of hard knocks uh, education into the queer space and really looking at just how much sexism there was in the community, how little community queer women uh, had, and, uh, you know, why why we weren't able to connect versus, you know, like once a month at a bar. And even that seemed difficult. I know for our organization, it was just so hard to get queer women to show up and participate and be involved. And I actually looked at all the you know, all the donations that were happening for the campaign and men were giving like six times the amount for a fraction of the phone calls, emails. And, you know, obviously that's um, in large part due to economic forces, right? Women make less than men. So you put two women, a couple versus two gay men, and we're actually at the opposite ends of the economic spectrum on top of other cultural influences around how women feel about money and, and using money for power. I think there's just a lot that men are sort of cultured around this idea that um, money and power go together. And I think women sometimes are still figuring out how to use money for influence. But the reality is that to create the world that you want to live in takes money and it takes a lot of money. And so those were some interesting lessons that I learned at the time. Obviously fell in love with technology, living in San Francisco, and um, really wanted to enter more in that space and actually joined an organization uh, focused on LGBTQ entrepreneurship. I joined the board and it was kind of there that I realized, you know, it was just even harder to get women to participate. And I really struggled there and decided, you know what, we need something for us that's led by us. It just felt like part of the issue was that, you know, a lot of the organizations were kind of, they'd have a women's night or they'd have something, um, kind of like themed, but like we needed something that was specifically meeting the needs of queer women, of lesbians, of non-binary folks. And it just felt like if we we weren't going to have something that was intentionally ours, that we weren't going to be able to have real community. And so it kind of started as a idea to prove myself right. I really thought lesbians wouldn't show up. You know, I truly did not think they would uh, come out and, um, you know, boy, was no there wrong. No pun. No mm-hmm. pun. Mm-hmm. What... What were the first couple events like? Were they smaller scale or how did you test the waters? Yeah, I mean, like any good entrepreneur, you know, I wasn't, especially in this market, I had a lot of experience with this market. And to be honest, you know, I I wanted to make sure that the community really wanted it. Yeah, we just like put up Facebook pages. We sent some emails to people at different companies asking them to spread the word. But yeah, we just met. We literally did like a Facebook event at a bar. Um, we said, let's just meet here and see who's interested. And I think the first event, we had like 20 people. I talked to every single person. I still remember like two of the people um, that I met there. I think they like they met there for the first time and now they have a baby, which I always think is like so amazing um, how many mm. things, you know, happen yeah. from these connections. Yeah. Um, so by the second event, we literally had like lines out the door. Like within the 30 days that we waited to do the next event, we like couldn't get everyone inside the bar. And then honestly, within like three to six months, people were like emailing me from other cities, asking us to do events in their city. And six or seven months into it, I was like, oof, like maybe this is going to be an actual thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's when I sort of looked at obviously the market and having a lot of experience trying to raise money from lesbians. I knew that that wasn't going to be the path. 
to this being a sustainable thing. You know, my company foot the bill for the first couple of years even, but really looking at how could we provide value to, to companies around recruitment and retention? Uh, since obviously, you know, diversity is a was an issue then, it's an issue now. So I thought if we could figure out a way to provide value to companies, then maybe we can use those funds to provide value to a community that really doesn't have a community. And this was 2014-ish, 2015, where it was getting going? Yeah, 2014 was our first summit. Our first event was probably like end of 2012. So it probably oh, took, okay. you know, yeah, all of 2013 was that like ideation stage of like having smaller events. You know, we had like some events in Seattle or in New York, just kind of making sure that this was something that people wanted. I just, I was mm-hmm. really uh, cautiously optimistic. Hope you enjoying this episode. Wanted to break in for a second and let you know about a brand new online academy that I have launched. It's called How to Raise Capital for Your Company from Scratch. I know I got your attention. (laughs) Well, just think about it. I have raised more than $10 million. I've earned a few million dollars. I've seen thousands and thousands of companies and their pitches and all of that. I've invested in more than 130 of those all in the last five years. So there's a lot of information I have that... Definitely share a lot of it for free. Definitely get it out there on a daily basis. So if you enjoy any of that content, if that has been helpful to you at all, you're going to like this. This is where I put it all together in the same place. It's been such an honor and a joy putting this course and this academy together for you. I want you to check it out. I want you to be able to get started on it right away. So we're going to take a little bit of a barrier down for you. I'm going to do it right here, right now. Here's the code to get a huge discount off of the regular price. Use code YOURFIRSTMILLION and you get a huge chunk taken out of that price. It's going to save you and earn you thousands of dollars if you read everything, watch everything, listen to everything. And... uh, I know that value is going to be there for you. Before you even take the course, before you even sign up for it, before you put a dollar down, here's what I want you to do. Go to the website, go to itsaboutdamntime.com, click on Arlen's Academy, check out the, the curriculum and all the information for sure. But before you make your decision, scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page, click on the flow chart that I created for you. Yes, I created a flow chart. I know. <laughs> I really had a lot of fun doing it. It took me hours. Okay. Uh, click on uh, click on the flow chart and check it out. See if it's right for you. And then once you make the decision to buy in, I've got the hookup for you. Your first million is the code. The flow chart will help you get there. and. Yeah, the course itself, people are already taking it. People are already giving me crazy feedback. It's already helping people. Like people are already saving money because of the first part of the course. So let's do it. Let's go. So it's important to to dig in here because you said it's been about six years since you started, but you actually spent a couple of years prior to that really doing your market research, developing Um, I think that's important for people who are listening to this uh, podcast because everyone listening to this podcast is really here to 
get the tools and the actionable things. And one of them sounds like you didn't just first A, jump in right away and B, Mm -hmm. you consider the moment that you've been around really when it was like official, but there was a lot of pre-work. So a lot of people think that some of this, this success happens overnight or happens immediately and that's just a really interesting thing to, to dig in on. What would you say the importance of, like, I'm big on branding with names. Like, I think it started by my name being what it is. My mom giving me such a powerful name and having such a, um, I don't know if you know this, Leanne, but I was named after my mother's ex-boyfriend. Uh, <laughs> I when didn't she was, know that. She was mad at my dad for not showing up to my birth on time. So she named me in the hospital after her ex-boyfriend and now it serves me well, but I've been big on branding. My magazine was called Interlude. My blog was called Your Daily Lesbian Moment. Now we have Backstage (laughs) Capital. So how important do you think the name of the company, Lesbians Who Tech, was in bringing people to the yard? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I love your mom even more now. That is the most amazing little <laughs> nugget that I'm going to hold with me always. And such a great idea. I feel like you just gave everyone um, such a payback idea. But um, I think naming's everything. I mean, naming and brand is everything, right? You can live or die on uh, your brand. Um, obviously, it, it takes so much more than that, but it, it's so important. And honestly, I think it's one of the biggest challenges in creating anything. Picking a name and an identity and, a, and even the logo, it can just be like impossible. So many people are like, Oh, I hate that logo. I'm like, well, find a logo you like. And people are always like, Oh God, it's actually really hard to find a logo that you like really like. But you know, look, I struggled with the name for a number of reasons. I grew up in San Francisco at a time. I would call myself like a cusp lesbian. You know, I worked with a lot of older lesbians, but I was sort of on the fringe of the kind of younger lesbian, queer, kind of using the word queer more commonly. I feel like our, our age in general is sort of like this cusp generation. And so I, mm-hmm. I really understood that the word queer was derogatory to a lot of older lesbians. And I also understood that for a lot of uh, younger people, uh, the word lesbian had sort of taken on this white Birkenstocks wearing, live in the Midwest with your two dogs kind of identity that to be honest, I wanted to reclaim because the truth was we had one word that meant both being gay, queer, and being a female. And many people fought for that word. And the word had really been used on the internet, at least, um, and, and still to this day, you know, it's a problem. It's Our emails get caught in spam all the time because of this, because the word lesbian predominantly is used on the internet for porn. So there was a, a large kind of thought around reclaiming the word lesbian because it, it was our word. And as far as I could tell, we weren't going to be able to create a single word that meant both being uh, gay and female. And so I thought it was important to use the word. I also th- thought from a marketing perspective, it was very sticky. You remember it, even if it doesn't uh, totally rub you the right way. It's uh, it's something that um, sticks and um, it's provocative, probably more provocative than it should be because it's it's an identity and I think it takes on a, a stronger sexual meaning than it needs to. And and so I wanted to do that. And also, you know, I'm just I'm not a fan of acronyms. I think acronyms get crazy and I think it's hard to remember them. And if you're not a part of the community, acronyms can be really overwhelming. So we decided to to name it, or I decided to name it Lesbians Who Tech for all of those reasons. And we uh, added a tagline, queer inclusive badass, um, because we also feel it's extremely important to use the word queer that's more encompassing and more inclusive. So yeah, those are sort of my uh, big picture thoughts around the brand. Yeah. And the tech part is to me really important. I mean, equally as important because you, as you said, you were already working at a, at a LGBTQ 
organization. There are many of them out there, but I think with the first time I ever heard Lesbians Who Tech, probably 2015, it just kind of like stopped me in my tracks because <laughs> right. I could have, it could have been whatever, but Lesbians Who Tech, okay, this is, to me, it felt like there was a professionalism to it. There was some sort of uh, kinship. And it also made me realize very quickly, as I was realizing a lot of other things about the tech world, that there's probably no one hub for people who are queer, who are lesbian, who are other to feel like they belong in the tech space. And it was blowing up so much uh, how, how interesting of a, of a place that could be. So I think that was, all of it is very inviting and intriguing, as you say. So you're in the 2014-15, well, 2014. Then tell me what happens when you put on your first large event. How do you take that leap of, I'm going to go put a deposit down on a big yeah. venue, to push the publish button on inviting thousands of people and hoping they show up. <laughs> How does that go when you've been working at, at a bar? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, so many things were happening at the time. One, uh, my brother had passed away a few years prior and I, I've always been a risk taker, I would say, but I think after you lose someone so close to you, suddenly it really it really changes how you view the world. You know, I think if that had not happened, I'm not sure I would have taken those kind of big leaps and especially financially. You know, I, I um, got my brother's life insurance uh, money and so I was able to do a few things in those funds. And I think it's important to talk about you know, the privilege of all of that, because this was like really self-funded. I don't think Lesbians Who Tech would be what it was today if we didn't have, you know, the two to three years to really build the foundation and the brand. And I don't think there would have been an investor who would have got us there. And there's definitely not C3 funds on that side either. But I think I was at a place where I'd done enough market research for the last year and I knew queer women, lesbians were hungry for this. And I thought, I'd gone to so many tech events, like LGBTQ tech events to women's tech events. And I just, I knew our people were missing and they had shown me they wanted it bad enough at that point that I felt like it was the next step that I knew I had to take um, just as someone who obviously was passionate about providing value to this community. And as an entrepreneur was to see like, you just don't know if anyone's going to put down their credit card until you give them an opportunity to do so. And a summit bringing people together was clearly what people wanted most. And people, what they really wanted, they wanted to hear speakers and content. And when I asked them, like, who would you want to even hear speak? And I did a hundred Google Hangouts with people that attended our, our bar events. And almost a hundred percent of them said they didn't have one lesbian that they could point to that they'd want to hear speak. You know, and then the, I think five people said uh, Megan Smith or Kara Swisher, which made sense at the time, especially. And I thought, God, if we could solve this problem and figure out how to provide value to companies. So, you know, I also reached out to a few of the people who had come to our events that worked at major companies. Uh, there was a lot of Googlers that were a part of the early days. And we sat down and had dinner a couple of times. And I was like, can you get us some money? We can front this too, but I'd really love an early partner to kind of say, hey, like, show me that you're willing down to willing to put down um, financial support here. But man, it was it was really scary. I mean, I had done so many things in the queer space and it was so hard to get women uh, to be a part of uh, the community in general, let alone entering into this kind of like larger tech space. But I think that it was sort of at the early days of this diversity in tech conversation and queer women in particular, I think were really hungry to get together and be together. And you know, we had 800 people come that first year, come together in the Castro district of San Francisco. And it was just, 
I think everyone there, uh, including myself, was just completely blown away that we existed and that there what, was this uh, support system. What year was that, that that those first 800 came to the summit? 2014. That was our first summit in San Francisco. Incredible. So I must have, I must have gone to the very second. Next one. You gave, yeah, yeah. You gave 2015. Whoa. I remember that. I remember standing against the wall. It's back when I wouldn't speak publicly. I could, I could speak one-on-one easily, but I wouldn't speak publicly. I had stage fright. And fast forward five years and like the photo of me with my arms outstretched on your stage, it's like follows me wherever I go because I'm supposed to. It's the best photo. <laughs> I know. But amazing. I remember the first. So this is another lesson is how much things can change in just a few years because of that 2015 spring when I went there, I was against the wall in the back and I watched just very quietly and was observing and from not even the seats, but from behind the seats to the stage took probably three years. So that that's a lesson that some people can learn is that where you are today doesn't necessarily mean that's where you'll be forever. Hi, this is Arlen Hamilton, author of It's About Damn Time, How to Turn Being Underestimated into Your Greatest Advantage. And you're listening to Women in Tech. I feel so grateful I've had the privilege of getting an advanced copy of Arlen Hamilton's new book, It's About Damn Time. She is one of the most inspiring venture capitalists I've ever come across. Her story from having absolutely nothing and being completely broke to being one of the most influential venture capitalists in the world blows my mind. And her book is insanely well-written. Right when I picked it up, I didn't want to put it down. She teaches me and us how to become the asset, how to be our best selves, and how to be a person that not only creates opportunity for ourselves, but creates an abundance of opportunity for others. I'm so proud to share her book with you, and I hope you'll pick it up. And I know for sure you'll be just as riveted as I was with each page you turn. Get It's About Damn Time at itsaboutdamntime.com. So you went from 800. What was the last in the the San Francisco event? What was the last number uh, last year? So now we're at 6,000. 6,000. 6,000. Wow. And it, if you haven't been to it, I mean, it's it's a party. It's a You feel so much love and, and support. And it's people always ask me this because when I say I'm going to go to it and I say, you want to come with me? Usually, you know, I'm asking someone who's not a gay and like lesbian, they're like, uh, can I go there? And it's like so many allies are there speaking and participating in the audience. Yeah. It is uh, a really interesting place. So you have now the New York version, you have the San Francisco version. When do you think with the corporate sponsorships, if you can say, if that's your business model, as you yeah. just discussed, it, when do you think you broke the, the 1 million mark? What, what, about, around what year? I think 2017 is probably when we hit a million. Does that really just kind of pay for the events themselves? Because you put on like dozens of events every year. Yeah. I mean, basically we live summit to summit, right? And I think that's what's difficult about being in a 
the Corona world, um, we were just getting to the place where we're trying to think more long-term because, you know, to be honest, it's taken us a while to get to this place. Um, people always tell me I need to raise the prices, but our prices don't even cover half of the production costs. And we keep our ticket prices really low because we want it to be accessible. We give out probably about 20%, 20 to 25% discounted or free tickets to, to people. Um, you know, half of that 6,000 is just free. We do a free career fair. So really it's more like 2,500 uh, paid people. So obviously we really depend on sponsorships and we choose to do events in really small places because our community, you know, really values that type of intimacy and, you know, taking over the Castro is just so much more powerful than having an event in a big kind of convention center. And it would just, you know, just want to be the same. So there's a lot of like economic forces at play there. So, you know, we're, we're doing things, trying to diversify on, on that because we've sort of kind of hit the max capacity on the events, but yeah, we yeah. basically reinvest in the community. We do a Eating with Zero Coding scholarship along with doing thousands of free events every year to make it even more accessible for the community. And if I had to guess, this is purely my my take on things. If I had to guess, you probably wouldn't be able to put on that scale of an event until at least fall of 2021. If, if again, That's what is opinion. scaring me the most, Arlen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, if we know that, yeah. you know, understanding and knowledge is power. So what I've seen, unfortunately, I've seen good friends, including Jody, who was on this podcast a few months ago, her, her company, which is an events company, mainly had to go under. You see even Sophia at Girl Boss thinking about what's next. Where do you stand? Like, not only where do you stand, just how are you doing? But I mean, you, you are a hacker. So yeah. what, do you, what do you do with a year and a half knowing that it, it can't be exactly like it used to be? where do you start thinking? Not the solution necessarily, but where do you start? I mean, you have to start with what value can you provide under the current constraints, right? So as soon as this happened, um, and it feels like a lifetime ago, the first thing we did was rescheduled to August. And we did that. Our event was supposed to be in April of 2020. Um, and like actually in a couple days. <laughs> um, and so we moved into August and this was kind of pre-South by Southwest canceling. And then uh, a couple of weeks ago, we moved it to October, but you're right. A lot of the data we're seeing, um, events and big gatherings are going to be the last thing that comes back to our uh, society. But even before that, you know, we're thinking about how we can connect, how we can provide value to our community, to the companies that sponsor us, looking at which companies are hiring, which companies aren't, and, and if so, what do they need? So early on, we actually hopped on the call with our confirmed 2020 partners we were transparent with them at every step, right? We're like, we're on track to lose about $2 million this year if we can't have any summit. Here's what we're thinking. What do you need, right? Like trying to kind of have a conversation about, you know, if you want us to get through this, here are some of the things we can do and trying to get that immediate feedback really quickly and then trying to package something so that they actually can decide whether or not they want to financially move forward. So we yeah. decided that, you know, most likely we knew Pride, Prides were going to get canceled around the world. We've decided to have the first ever not in real life Pride Summit this year. And so Woo-hoo! doing a full week, full week of content, we've created a whole slew of partnership options for companies around recruitment and retention and engagement. Obviously, you know, connecting with your employees is really hard right now. And we have a really unique way to reach queer women, non-binary folks, really diverse talent globally, essentially, in a really strong way. And especially for Pride, so many companies, rightly so, invest a lot of funds in um, connecting with their employees who are LGBTQ. So we're hoping to be a really great way to do that. 
So we're going to know a lot in the next 30 days of whether or not companies even have the ability to purchase partnerships around, around Pride. But that's our kind of first bet. If that doesn't work out, we're developing a recruiting company where we really help companies uh, recruit in a more thoughtful way around meaningful relationships. We're obviously doing a lot of content. The podcast is on the table. I've sort of been hesitant to, to start one of those, but um, <laughs> there's a lot of ideation happening right now. And it's really figuring out how we can provide value in the marketplace, especially as the marketplace changes. Do you, and I, I should be clear in saying that I, I do believe you'll have your October event. I just don't know if it'll be the exact size. Yeah. Um, just because of what I'm understanding about all sorts of things medically that we need to be able to do to walk into rooms like that. But that's okay. To me, like once I started having like these discussions with myself, of like, this is how it may be. <laughs> like I had just battled all this stage fright. I had like a million speaking events with all these people uh, lined up. But mm-hmm. I do think that you you could have a really interesting event in October. And I'm really excited about your pride events, your virtual events that you're doing all summer. I think it's really smart. I, I've been touting your reaction to coronavirus uh, online because you were one of the very first people to not postpone, but to say we're looking at postponing in the interest of safety early, early March when every day counted and it was hard for people to, to get there. And then since then, I've been receiving both as, a, as an attendee and as a speaker, your outreach, the way you're handling it is really interesting. And, and I think if you can keep that going with, you know, the soberness of understanding that <laughs> it's going to be okay. Besides your newborn and your wife and your friends and family and your, your teammates, what gives you optimism when it comes to what the next couple of years are going to look like? Hmm. I mean, seeing society come together in these moments, um, it, and and so many people are dealing with just incredible hardships right now, just immense hardships and the way that people are persevering, the way that companies are innovating. I think the transparency I've seen at a lot of companies and how they're talking to people. And whenever things are hard, you know, there's a lot of growth that happens. It's just inspiring to see the type of change that could come from us. Um, I think similarly to losing the uh, 2016 election. I think what's hard about this is that we're feeling those feelings again. It's like we knew we were going to lose a lot as a country after uh, Hillary Clinton lost the election. And I think it reopened the scab and the wound and sort of realizing here's the real example of what we lost as a country, as an economy, as a society. Um, This is a real, a real moment here. And if we can make sure that we change course so that we can never put ourselves in a position like this again. You know, maybe we'll have saved um, saved our, our country from something even bigger in the future if we can learn this lesson, right? I mean, I, I spent a lot of time, as, as I think you have, in uh, Berlin, and it's one of my favorite cities because there's this history and connection to their past and the darkness that they went through and uh, the atrocities that they went through as a, as a country. And there's just this really strong sense of kind of knowing what happened kind of deep within and uh, kind of keeping it close, right? I wish that our country would do that more. I think America, you know, whether it's sexism or racism, we haven't done that enough. And I hope something like this can, um, you know, make people reflect more and, and dig deeper. 
And the last thing we'll talk about as we close out is that reminded me of how, just how many interesting people you have interviewed or had on your stage. And we'll, we'll focus on people like Hillary Clinton, people like Stacey Abrams, Gloria Steinem. Why do you particularly bring those types of people to speak to the audience that you're speaking to? A number of reasons. I mean, honestly, I think it's really important for them to show up for a community. I mean, there's no other place that you can reach lesbians and queer women specifically, even if you've spoken at the human rights campaign or pride, but you are not able to reach queer women and non-binary folks in the same way that you can when you come to lesbian to tech period. And I think it's important for them to show up for a community and also have a conversation. Yeah, I think there's a dialogue that can happen at our conferences that to be honest, it doesn't happen a lot of other places. It's a very transparent, frank place where we get really honest with one another. And obviously I'm biased, but there's a vibe and there's an energy that I think it's so important for especially these allies to see because if you can't see the community, right? They've been in rooms with really powerful gay men. They have not been a room of powerful, talented, for women and lesbians. And it's so important for them to see us and to make sure that we have a seat at the table of whatever decisions they're making next, because we are so brilliant. And it's so important to make sure that we are in those rooms where decisions are being made. And so, I mean, honestly, I work really hard to make sure that we can um, get those speakers because it's, it's a type of connection. Stacey Abrams has come twice now. The first time she came, she sat in the front row. She wrote notes the whole time. I've talked to her on the phone, like through her journey, you know, and we've been a resource for her on the technology side. And, you know, I'm hoping she's uh, maybe going to be the VP pick. And that's really powerful and really important that our community are connected to leaders who are making decisions that affect our lives. And so I'll continue to make sure that those types of people uh, show up. Do you have political aspirations yourself? (laughs) I mean, not at the moment, but, uh, I'll never say never to anything like that. My wife is is more the political person, but um, I think right now we need more women in positions of power, especially economically, so that we can make sure the people running for office are the people that uh, represent our values. And I think that's what's been obviously problematic about the last uh, few decades is that we, you know, we really don't have enough people in office that that represent the people that actually live in this country. Yeah, it's starting to change and it's it's a good it's a good change. And I really appreciate you being here. I really appreciate learning so much. I've known you for years and I learned a lot in this <laughs> in this interview. And so I'm excited to share it with uh with the world. And thanks so much. You go back to uh I think it's your hour with with the baby. So you go back to that and <laughs> and uh say hi to everybody. And it's it's been a real, real pleasure getting to know you a little bit more. Thanks, Arlen. I appreciate it. Arlen. Thanks for listening to this episode. So I would love to keep up with you online. You can find me at Arlen was here on Instagram and on Twitter. That's A-R-L-A-N was here. I cannot wait to continue this conversation with you. Your First Million is produced by Anna Eichenawa, executive producer Arlen Hamilton, associate producer Chacho Valadez. 